I remember when the drummer used to be a middle school kid. Do you remember that? Remember our drummer? Do you know who our drummer was today? I mean, he looked like Matt Vieira with an Air Force haircut, but I wasn't quite sure who that really was. So good to have you back, Matt. Yeah, yeah. Only for a brief time, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, there were only ever two uh, ways that God has ever given whereby people could be accepted by him. There are only ever two ways given by God where people could be accepted by him. Two ways to be accepted by God. Sometimes referred to as the Old Testament and the New Testament. Or the Older Testament, the Older Covenant, and the Newer uh, Covenant. Or the Newer Testament, or as we'd say, the New Contract. Sometimes um, the Old Testament was called the law, and the new is simply called grace, or sometimes referred to as Judaism and Christianity. But there's only ever really been two ways that God has given whereby you can be right with him, whereby you can be straight with him. The old system was given to Israel. The new system was given to the whole world. The old system was given to Israel uh, by Moses, if you remember, And uh, when you go back in the Old Testament, read about it, uh, just about every single aspect of a person's life, from birth to death, you know, uh, was covered by God's laws. The handbook of the old uh, way to get along with God was the book of Leviticus. And if you've read the book of Leviticus ever, or even recently, uh, you'll know that God has something to say about every aspect of our lives. You read the book of Leviticus, if you want to know, like, I wonder what God's opinion is of this or that, read the book of Leviticus, and you'll be surprised at how much uh, God is interested in what goes on in our lives. And so, uh, if you were a believer in the old covenant, when you put your faith in God's word and you took him at his word, it was evidenced in your life by how much effort you made to be obedient to all of those laws. And the problem, of course, is that nobody could live 100% of those laws. Nobody could do it. You can't do it. I I challenge you. Go read Leviticus, see if you can live like that, right? And nobody could do it. So God initiated a sacrificial system of blood sacrifices where animals were killed and their blood was offered as a covering for the shortcomings of the people who couldn't live according to the law. And God instituted this whole priesthood where a priest could represent the people before God by taking blood of a sacrificed animal and using it then to cover sins, offering it to God as a a sacrifice. It was dependent on a a sacrifice. And you know, um, the new system, the New Testament, the new covenant, the new contract given by God to the whole world through Jesus It, too, is dependent on sacrificial blood. But this time it's the blood of Jesus. It's not the blood of animals. This time it's a better blood. It's the blood of Jesus that was sacrificed on the cross. But it's still established by sacrifice and by blood. Um, I know that to the contemporary mind, to the average person who's alive today, the idea of a sacrifice or a, a blood sacrifice right? It's kind of primitive, don't you think? 
I mean, a blood sacrifice sounds like something ISIS would be into more than the God of the Bible that we've come to worship this morning. What's with God's focus on blood? Why is God like so obsessed that every arrangement for us to be right with him has to do with blood? Why is it? And I know that people today think, you know, this is really kind of weird. It seems kind of dark, you know, that God would require blood just to satisfy some requirements that he's made. Why so much focus on the blood? Well, for one main reason, Hebrews chapter 9, I think, states it pretty succinctly. In verse 22, it says, indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified by blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Without the shedding of blood, your sin stands between you and God, and there's no way you can reconcile it. There's no way, there's no self-help program that you can employ that would make you right with God. Without the shedding of blood. And why is that? What is that all about? Why is that so necessary? Well, way back in Leviticus, in that handbook in the Old Testament, God said something that I think we all know now much better through science But back in the day when God said it, people didn't really understand it. But here's what God said. He said, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. The life of the flesh, your life is in your blood. And I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Verse 14 says, for the life of every creature is its blood. Now, I'm not much of a doctor or anything, but, you know, and I never really took very many pills in my life until I had some heart problems and whatnot, and now I take these pills. And and I always kind of wondered, like, you know, you have an ache or a pain here or there, or something's wrong, and you take a pill, and how in the world does the pill know where to go? Because, you know, you got a lot of moving parts and so on and so forth. And so, you know, you take a pill, and the pill gets digested, and the pill goes into your bloodstream, and your blood goes all over your body until that chemical that's in that pill finds the receptor that's at the place where your pain is and is able to address it. Your life is in your blood. And I never realized this, but I looked it up. Do you realize that in your body, you sitting here this morning, inside your body, there are 60,000 miles of blood vessels. That's almost two and a half times around the equator in your body, each of us. I mean, not collectively, like individually. And so your blood gets pumped out of your heart into your aorta, goes into arteries, goes into capillaries, goes into veins, comes back to the heart. There's 60,000 miles of blood that's going in uh, sometimes just single files, a single cell in in a little capillary that's allowing, you know, things to come in and out. And your blood is what takes oxygen to all the parts of your body, keeps you alive. Your blood is what takes nutrients to all the parts of your body. Your blood is what picks up waste from all the parts of your body and brings it, you know, back. Your life is in the blood. God said it way back in Leviticus. Why is God so obsessed about shedding blood in order to make things right? I'll tell you why. Because sin equals death. The shedding of blood is about death. Because sin equals death. God is so serious about sin. He is so holy, like we sang about him this morning, that he can have absolutely nothing to do with sin. And we are littered in sin. And so we're separated from God, and God said, you know, only death can atone for sin. Only the shedding of blood. 
which is symbolic of death, can atone or can make things right as a result of our sin. Blood was uh, to remind us of how serious uh, sin really is. Our life is in our blood, and our sins sentence us to death, and either we die or somebody dies in our place. And that was the message in the Old Testament to set us up for the New Testament, for the New Covenant, which God knew was coming, is that the blood of um, animals could never really get rid of sin. Uh, The blood of animals covered sin, but never really took it away. And so um, this morning, when we um, think about this, there's another kind of contemporary mindset, I think, of most people in our day and age uh, where uh, sin is not really taken very seriously. Sin is pretty casual. Sin, uh, people have an attitude about sin, like, well, so, you know, I, I, I go against, uh, you know, what I know is right and what God says is right and, and so on. And this whole idea even today that there is a, a, a biblical morality, there is a, a, a universal standard of right and wrong. That's like a foreign notion to people, right? I mean, when you talk to the average person today and kind of ask them, you know, their thoughts about right and wrong, it's just like the Bible says, people do what's right in their own eyes, not in God's eyes, right? People do what's right in their own eyes. They don't stop and think, I wonder what's right in God's eyes. And for most people, for example, you know, tolerance is right, Right? And exclusivity is wrong. So a guy like Jesus comes along and he says, look, nobody goes to the Father but through me. That's not right. That's exclusive. That's not tolerant. That can't be right. I'm going to do what's right in my own eyes. I don't, I don't think that's right, you know? And, uh, you know, here's another one. Choice is right. Laws are wrong. You know, what's right is what's right for me, right? And that's how people think about right and wrong. And the casualness, we even legislate sin in our country. That's where we're at. I think we're fast approaching a point of no return, right? I don't care who runs for president. We're moving in a direction that's away from God. And so there are all these different kinds of uh, thoughts wrong, you know, is here, here's what most people think wrong. It's not being true to yourself. I got to be true to myself. That's what's right. And it's wrong to not be true to yourself. And so if God says this, but I think that, I got to be true to myself. And so this whole idea, the contemporary, the idea of a blood sacrifice, first of all, is kind of primitive. The idea of a morality that's good for everybody, a standard that God, our creator, sets. It's like a foreign concept. Uh, And so what happens is when we lose a sense of sin, we lose a sense of a need for forgiveness, right? Because if you don't feel like you've done anything wrong, well, you don't really feel like you need to be forgiven, and you don't feel like certainly somebody needs to shed blood for you, you know? C.S. Lewis, in his book, uh, Mere Christianity, uh, put it like this one time. He said, Christianity tells people to repent change, and promises them forgiveness. It therefore has nothing to say to people who don't know that they've done anything to repent of and who don't feel they need any forgiveness. 
It is after you've realized that there is a real moral law and a power behind that law, a powerful God behind that law, and that you have broken the law and put yourself in the wrong with that power. It's after all of that and not a moment sooner that Christianity can begin to talk. It's not until we recognize the reality of who God is and uh, our interaction with him that Christianity makes any sense. And so if you try to witness to somebody and try to talk to them about their need for Jesus, but you don't talk to them about the reality of sin and a holy God, they don't understand what you're talking about. And especially if you start talking about the need for a, a blood sacrifice, you know, a death to take the place. Um, Somebody said one time, there are only two kinds of uh, people in the world. Uh, The righteous, who think they're sinners, which would be us, and sinners who think they're righteous and don't need any salvation. Only two kinds of people in the world. The righteous, who think they're sinners, and sinners who think they're righteous and don't need what God has to offer. And so... Uh, The point of the blood at the center of worship, whether it's in the Old Testament or the New Testament, speaks to the seriousness and the consequence, the dire consequence of sin in our life, which is death, which is really separation from God. Death is separation. And it's separation from God for all of eternity. And so, you know, uh, that's why to worship God, you need to have a broken heart. You need to have a sense of just who you are in the presence of God. Remember in Isaiah chapter 57, we looked at this verse last week. If you ask the question, where can I find God? Where can I find God? The Bible says you can only find God in two places. Right? This is a great verse. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up. This is what God says, right? Who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. Whose name is other. God's different. He's not just another one of us, right? Whose name is holy. Here's what he says. I dwell in a high and a holy place. That's where you can find me, high, lifted up in heaven, right? And also with him who is of a contrite and a lowly spirit. Somebody who's broken in the realization that I have sinned against the holy God who loves me and who created me and holds my life and my eternity in his hand. And I've offended him and I've ignored him and so on. And I dwell in this high and holy place and in the hearts of the spirits of the lowly to revive the heart of the contrite. Where do you find God? Well, he's high and lifted up. He's in heaven on his throne. And he's in the hearts and minds of the people who are broken over the reality of their sinfulness. But the old covenant, the Old Testament, the old worship, if you will, of the older testament was um, inadequate and called for the need for a new covenant because of two things. The old covenant, number one, only covered the sins of ignorance, sins that you did that you weren't aware of. (laughs) I don't even hardly think about those, right? I'm so aware of the sins that I do do, you know, that, you know. Do you know there's no provision in the Old Testament for sins that you commit on purpose? So the old covenant was inadequate because it couldn't cover those sins. And the second reason, uh, that's in uh, Hebrews chapter 9, if you have your Bibles open, in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 7, 
talks about the fact that the uh, blood that the priest offered in the old, under the old system was for himself and it was only for the unintentional sins of the people. And the second problem with the older covenant, the older way of getting along with God, was uh, in verse 9, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. The second problem with the older setup with God is that you could never get a clear conscience. You could never be totally forgiven. Because why? Because your sins were only covered. They were never taken away. And you could never live with a clear conscience. And so um, the author of Hebrews is reminding us here why there was a need for a newer covenant, a newer testament. And again, the Old Testament looked forward to this great coming of a sin bearer. Isaiah chapter 53, Psalm 22, talks about the fact that somebody is coming. Jeremiah chapter 31, the new covenant that God is uh, uh, pointing towards and so forth. And then Jesus comes with this better blood, the blood of not an animal but his own blood. And he comes with a new worship, and he comes with a superior sacrifice. And he doesn't just cover sins, he removes them. John the Baptist like, behold, the Lamb of God who what? Takes away, takes away the sins of the world. Wow. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away. This is really like the good news that God is willing to take away the sins of the world. And so in verse 14, it says, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience. The blood of Christ is able to purify our conscience from dead works so that we're freed up to serve a living God. Dead works are anything you try to do to make your own way with God. Any self-help program that you're, you know, I think if I could just add to what Jesus did on the cross, this or that, God would love me more. That's a dead work. That never counts. It doesn't, it's not the way it works. All that is is a depreciation of the reality of what the cross really did for us, a devaluation of the blood of Christ every time we try to substitute something you know, in, in its place. And so verse 15 of uh, Hebrews chapter 9, Therefore, Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant, a new way of relating to God. He's a mediator. What does a mediator do? A mediator is somebody who brings together two parties, right? In this case, a mediator is somebody who brings together an absolutely holy, holy, holy God with sin-stained people. How are we going to ever get together? With people who are born with a a penchant to sin. Um, He's the mediator bringing these two sides together to bring a holy God and sin-stained people. And how's he going to do it? He does it by the shedding of his blood. He does it by his death, the death of the only person who ever uh, lived that didn't need to pay for his own sin because he was sinless. And so he could pay for ours. And so God was pleased, the Bible says, to take your sin and my sin and put it on him and allow him to shed blood, to give up his life, because that's the penalty for our sin. And we would be separated from God for all of eternity if it were not for the blood of Christ offered on Calvary's cross. And we have to ask ourselves, you know, do we appreciate it? Uh, Do we value it? It's interesting. Uh, The next verse says that, you know, uh, the blood of Jesus reaches backwards and forwards. The blood of Jesus went all the way back over the Old Testament. Look what it uh, says. Um, Jesus is the mediator of this new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. 
All those people who sinned under the first covenant, this blood reaches backwards and covers the sins of those Old Testament people who believed and put their faith but could never live up to the word. And it reaches back. And not only that, but it reaches forward. Um, it reaches forward. You know, before you and I were ever even born, our sins were covered on the cross. Do you realize that? 1 John 2.2 2 is a great passage of scripture. It says, you know, the propitiation for our sins, and Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, but not just for ours, but for all the sins of the whole world. Jesus' death, there was enough blood cells in Jesus, you know, blood that was shed to cover every single last person on the planet. And sometimes it blows my mind to think about the fact that you and I have friends and relatives for whom Jesus already paid the price, and they're clueless. They're clueless. And they're going through life not understanding that they've offended a holy God, that eternal separation from God awaits them on the other side of this life. And God has entrusted to us the privilege of going and announcing this really good news. Do I have great news for you? You messed up. But God's already covered it. And you can be right with him through this new arrangement, this new contract, this new testament that God has created through his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. His death reaches forward and it reaches backward and it covers the sins of the entire world. What's left for us is to believe. And then again, we go on here in, in uh, verse 15. Uh, he's the mediator of this new covenant. It reaches back, it reaches forward. And, uh, and then verse 16, for where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. That's true, right? If you have a will, uh, it doesn't go into effect until you die. The word for covenant and the word for will are exactly the same in the Greek language, but it's translated two different ways here in the text. Because the first one is translated covenant in verse 15 because it's talking about the Old Covenant or the Old Testament and the New Covenant, the New Testament. The second one is translated will because it's a legal issue. And, uh, you know, this is true, right? The person has to die. I mean, there's all kinds of books and movies that have been made about how can I get this person to die so I can get my inheritance, right? You know, everybody understands that. And, and so uh, that's what the author is saying here, where there's a will involved. And, you know, you think about it. What's your will called? Your last will and testament, right? If you have a will, it's your last will and testament. This is what you want to have happen after you die uh, and so on. And so this is my will for what I want to have happen. And in verse 17, for a will takes effect only at death since it's not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. So you might be the recipient of some great inheritance that somebody left in your will, in their will, right? You might, you might be the recipient of uh, season tickets to the Giants for the next 50 years. You know, I don't know. But you can't have it. You can't take advantage of it, okay, until the person dies. So listen to this. What is the Lord's will for your life? What is God's will for your life? What does God have written down that's his will for your life? I can tell you a couple of things. <clears throat> I am 1,000% sure that God's will for you is to have eternal life. Eternal life. That's God's will for you. He wants you to inherit, as a gift from him, eternal life. That when you die and your body separates from your soul, your soul will get a new body, and not only will it 
be a, a life that's a zillion times better than this life. Everything that we don't like about this life will be resolved, and everything that we do like about life will be on steroids in heaven, right? I mean, that's what it says. Nobody can even imagine how great it's going to be. That's how great it's going to be. Not even Donald Trump can imagine you know, how great it could be, right? You know what else is God's will for you? God's will is for you to experience 100% forgiveness, for you to be able to live with a clear conscience, not because you aren't guilty, but because God loves you so much that he shed his own blood to cover it, to, to take it away. It's God, I know it's God's will for you to live with 100%. If you're still walking around feeling guilty about whatever, you ought to appropriate God's will into your life, right? It's God's will for you to experience 100% uh, forgiveness. It's God's will for you to know that you're loved. It's God's will that you would know that he wants you. He loves you. He wants you to be with him for eternity. He wants you to live with him for eternity. He's, he loves you. He wants you. You know, it's God's will for you to know that. It's God's will for you to um, know that he wants to celebrate your, your life and have you live with a clear conscience. It's God's will to lavish on us. Second Corinthians, for you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become incredibly rich. You and I are the recipients of an inheritance that far outweighs any inheritance you could ever experience in this lifetime. Because it goes beyond this lifetime, right? But here's the deal. You don't get any of it without the death of Christ. Nothing comes our way apart from the shedding of blood. Until the death of Christ, the will of God is not in effect. Just like any other will. Until the death is established, until you recognize that Jesus came and died in my place to take away my sins, and you acknowledge that and embrace that and believe that and allow that to seep into your heart until that time, none of the will of God happens in a person's life. It's only effective with the death of Christ. There's no forgiveness apart from the shedding of blood. You know, in a, in a moment, we're going to go over to the communion table and we're going to remember how it is we got this inheritance. And we're not going to go there, you know, to reenact. Notice, you know, um, let me just read a couple more verses here in um, Hebrews uh, chapter 9, um, verse 23. For thus it was necessary uh, for the copies of heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. So the author is comparing, you know, the old tabernacle and all the stuff that was cleansed with blood and so forth. And, and saying it was necessary for all of that to be cleansed with blood. But look, look what it says, you know, for the heavenly things themselves to be cleansed with a better sacrament. What are the heavenly things themselves? I think it's you and me. The heavenly things themselves, it's us. We needed to be purified in order for the spirit of the living God to come and dwell and bring life into our spirits. And we needed to be purified by better things than dead animals. We needed to be purified by the blood of Christ, by the death of Christ on the cross because of the seriousness of sin. 
And thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered, uh, has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are just copies of the true things, but into heaven itself to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. There are three, um, three times where the word appear uh, occurs here in this um, section, this last section. And um, uh, I want to just point this out. I want to uh, show you that how significant this is. The, the, there's three different Greek words. They're all just translated appear because of the limits of the English language. But each one of them has a nuance that, you know, in Greek is, is brought out by different Greek words. And so... Um, if you watch for the word appear here, you'll see there's three appearances of Christ. Verse 24, for Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Uh, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. So when we go to the communion table, it's not to reenact the death of Christ, he's not still on the cross. It's to remember the once and for all. Look what it says. For uh, he didn't have to repeat this, you know. As it is, he appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. That's the second appear. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment... So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Three appearances of Christ. They, each word appear means something different. The first appearance of Christ is in verse 26, if we think about it chronologically. Christ has appeared once and for all at the end of the ages. What for? When Christ came the first time, what did he come for? to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. When Christ came the first time at Christmas, the, the word appear here is probably best translated manifest. He appeared, he manifested. In other words, he was always there, but when he appeared the first time, he manifested himself so that we could see him, so that we could know him, and he did miracles and, and so on. He manifested himself. When I, uh, Barbara and I, a couple years ago, did a wedding uh, in Nashville, Tennessee, and it was in the foyer of a famous concert hall. And the foyer was made up entirely of uh, marble, had these balconies all around it, very ornate, really kind of classy. And on either side of this kind of rectangular area, there was a huge pit that dropped off, like two stories down, stairs and stuff, right? And so, you know, we were all uh, lined up for the wedding, and the, the aisle kind of ran down the middle. And uh, they had a balcony that had the orchestra in it and all of that. And... Um, when the music started for the bride to come, of course, everybody would turn and look down the aisle. And down at the end of the aisle, um, there, was, there was a big pit. And all of a sudden, the bride appeared, one step at a time. I mean, it was majestic. And she just appeared like that. She was there all the time. Nobody could see her. That's what that word appear means. And that's just like Jesus. He's been there all the time since the foundation of the world. But at Christmas time, he appeared. And it was majestic. And he came and he did miracles and he showed himself. And he, he's the exact image of the living God. 
The second word appear is in verse 24, um, where it says that um, Jesus went to heaven itself to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. The second word appear is a different Greek word, and it means to appear like before a judge on behalf of somebody else. I don't know if you've ever been in trouble where you've needed an attorney, and you call the attorney, and he says, you don't need to go to court. I will go and represent you, right? You're like, Imagine having Jesus on retainer, because that's what this is saying. Because here's the deal, right? Jesus has a will, and he dies to put that will into effect. And then he rises from the dead to be this mediator, this intercessor, this one who appears in the very presence of God right now today on our behalf to make sure that the benefits of that will actually come to us. There are all kinds of stories about, you know, and I've been involved with people who have died and left a will and somebody tries to change it or somebody tries to hide it from somebody and don't let them know and, and uh, you know, all of those kinds of uh, things that happen, you know. And here's Jesus, our mediator, the one who died to put the will in effect, and he's there at the right hand of the Father like an attorney representing us 24-7 to make sure nothing happens to our inheritance. But we get what's coming to us through his blood. Oh, that's the second appearance. The third appearance uh, really has uh, the idea of intimacy behind it. It, it means face-to-face. And uh, notice we, we see in verse 28 that Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Here the word means face-to-face or intimacy. It's about the second coming of Jesus to earth. We shall behold him, the song says. We're going to see him face-to-face. Imagine being called by your name, by the king of the universe. The Bible says Jesus is coming back. He's going to rule the nation. He's going to make the world what it was intended to be from the Garden of Eden. And that for a thousand years, Jesus will reign on the earth. It's the only hope, I think, You know, we're getting to the point of no return. The only hope, and it's the hope of every Christian, that Jesus is going to come back and that Jesus will set things straight and that there will be a kingdom of God in the kingdom of the world. And it will be a kingdom that, uh, you know, operates by righteousness and by generosity. And uh, when Jesus came the first time, the Bible says he came as a lamb slain before the foundation of the world. When he comes back, the Bible says he's coming as a lion, the lion of Judah. When Jesus came the first time, he came in love. When he comes back, he's coming in power. But it'll be too late. Love and power are opposite ideas. Have you ever noticed? Love and power. Whoever has the most love has the least amount of power in any relationship. When Jesus came, he had all the power. We read the passage this morning but he emptied himself and he humbled himself and he made himself nothing to become a servant. He had no power, but he had love. And he sacrificed his life for us. When he comes back, he's coming in power. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. Every person that's not reconciled to God will be scared spitless. When he comes back, he's coming in majesty and power. And he's coming to rule and to establish the kingdom of God on the kingdom of this earth. And so the question, you know, are we ready? Are we ready to meet him? Have you put your faith in his first appearance? 
Have you said, you know what? When Jesus came the first time, he came to get rid of my sin. You know, I'm going to choose to believe that. I'm going to, I'm going to embrace what God says, that when Jesus died on the cross, he had my sins on him. And he set me free, and he's cleared my conscience, and he's given me a new life. Are you ready to meet him? Have you put your faith in his first appearance? Are you ready to meet him? Do you have faith in his second appearance where he's at the right hand of the Father even today, making intercession for us? You know, uh, when you pray, do you envision Jesus at the right hand of the Father, and you're talking about your life to him, and he's relating it to the Father, and he's asking for the Father to do, you know, and, and so do, do we have this sense of we have this ongoing relationship with Jesus today who's alive and who's the mediator and who's making sure that nothing happens to the arrangement that God has made for us? And are you ready to meet him because you're looking forward to his return? You know, do you watch the news and say, you know, I wonder where we're at on the timeline that the Bible has given us about prophecy and about end times and about Jesus coming back and where are we really at and what's really happened in the Mideast and what does it really mean that the Muslims are, you know, uh, rising to this uh, level at this point in time and what does it mean that da, 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 and, and what does it mean and where are we at? Are you excited about the return of Christ? Are you looking forward to having him call you by name? And seeing him face to face, we shall behold him then face to face. Are you ready? Three appearances, all on our behalf. Praise God. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, I'm so thankful for the Bible. So thankful for your word. So thankful that we have something we can trust. Time tested, Father, miraculously put together by all kinds of different people in different times, different periods, yet all, everything tying together, saying the same thing, obviously written by you. And Heavenly Father, this morning especially, we think about this uh, reality of how our sin deserves death, and how we all hate death, and how it means separation from everything familiar to us, everything important to us, death. And you tell us, Heavenly Father, that there is no getting rid of sin without the shedding of blood, without death happening. And then you come, Father, and you die in our place to set us free. Oh, I pray, Heavenly Father, that you'll help us to uh, have uh, an appreciation that will keep getting deeper over the fact that we are so loved by you that you would do this for us. And as we go to the communion table, especially this morning, may we remember, Father, this great sacrifice. And I pray, Father, that, you know, we'll have a desire to be like Jesus. That um, we'll have an aversion to sin. We recognize it, sin in our lives. And we don't always, uh, you know, resist it. We don't always, uh, we're not always repelled by it. Often we find ourselves laughing at it. And instead, I pray, Father, that you would teach us the precious value of the shed blood of Jesus and how how lost and how gone and how separated we would be for all of eternity if it weren't for this sacrifice of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to appreciate and value it. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.